This podcast was recorded on February 2nd, 2018. The views and opinions expressed herein are of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Double Line Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, everybody, welcome to The Sherman Show. This is Jeff Sherman. I'm here with my co-host, Samuel Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have two special guests, not just one, but two special guests coming from our international fixed income team. We have Mark Christensen and Sue Feku. Welcome to The Sherman Show. It's good to be here. Hello. Yeah, so we decided that we've already talked to uh, Luz Padilla, who's been one of your longtime partners in the space, and um, instead of coming separately, we think of you guys as a pair, you know, Mark and Soufay, you know, who's going to tackle the questions, who's going to talk to the clients. And so I'd like to start off with a little bit of your backgrounds and uh, what got you guys working in um, the international fixed income area. So whoever wants to jump in first, Mark or Soufay? You should introduce us as Soufay and Mark. Oh, Soufay and Mark? Mark. No, I was just going <laughs> alphabetical. <laughs> alphabetical like either, either way. No, but we'll no, go no, Soufay Mark. Not. We'll just make it like, you know, kind of like the Brangelina type thing. <laughs> Soufay Mark. Okay. This other way around you, Dave. Yeah, she did. She did. That's what they do around here. So Soufay Mark, one half of it. Please start with this. Sure. So I was born in Taiwan. I left Taiwan when I was around five years old and sort of lived around the world. You can speak Chinese? A well, he has a Chinese wife, so his Chinese may be better than, than mine. No. Anyway, so having grown, you know, uh, travel around the world, and it's mostly, it's all emerging market c- countries that I lived in. So I can't call a particular country my home because I, you know, it's a different country. We moved around every four or five years. Uh, I went to undergrad in Texas. I moved from South America to to the States for college. I went undergrad degree in Texas and have my uh, went to business school in Southern California. And um, so before we get over to the other half of Sufe Mark, what got you into the investment business? How'd you get into there from there? Sure. So I, you know, in business school, a couple of my friends were working in this industry in a money management firm, and we were doing a lot of uh, working on a lot of projects together for for school in the offices. And so having spent time in the offices, I'm like, hey, it's really cool. They have these fancy offices. That's where I want to work, you know, get the fancy big office, perhaps one day a corner office. Um, and how's that going so far? Working. Work, still, still, still working. working. Still working okay, to, okay, to, okay. to that goal. So you so, were lured and, into the industry by simply the facade of the office or at exactly. least the perception of having the office and one day sitting in the corner by yourself. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's still awesome. working on that. Okay. So shortly after I got my, uh, my MBA, I uh, got a call from a friend of mine that says they have uh, there's actually an opening as an EM credit analyst in a management uh, in a money management firm. And I was like, wow, my dream job right there. Dream you know, job. So- <laughs> they have offices. They, they, there's offices they at this offices. firm. They have offices. I interview. It was in a nice office, okay. you know. So I, you know, interview and. That's the story. Been since working with Mark and Luce uh, since then. So, Got Mark, that job. were you one of these people that interviewed uh, one half of Soufe Mark here? That interviewed you interviewed Soufe for this job. I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah so that was a shining the, star. Shining Any star. recollections of yeah. the from the from the interview? 
you know, with most of the interviews we've had at the firm over the years, somebody's always stood out. And while I can't remember the exact interview, I do. I, I'm sure that Sufe absolutely stood out. Okay, the so there's always someone here. in, in the here. cohort, <laughs> um, you know, in that cohort. But and since she's here, probably she did. She was pretty that fantastic. Star. Okay, yeah. great. So as that will lead in, so Mark, how did you get in this uh, industry? What what was your path? So my path into the industry, I was a financial clerk for six months in a church service mission in Ecuador. And so during that time, I became interested, although a lot of my work happened to be dealing with individual folks out in the smaller towns. During that six months, I became interested with how countries work, the dynamics of emerging markets, et cetera. And when I went back to school after that time, I majored in finance with an emphasis in in international finance with a minor in Spanish, and then uh, got into the industry backhanded through an internship into a investment management firm, the one that we we came from, in IT. And I was heading back to get a master's and was offered the job into the emerging market team back in 93. 93. And I've been here ever since. And then, uh, yeah, you've been doing EM since then. Or international in general with a focus on EM. And so you say 1993. I recall that uh, Lou started in 1994. Yeah. So you were the first person of this team that was uh, in the EM space back at the old place. And then so let's let's talk about um, this interview with Sue Fay, bringing her onto the team in the late 90s. So how how's this dynamic between the three of you? I mean, I think of the three of you as this core element, at least in my entire career, I've known the three of you always to be in together. How did that start to click when Sue Fake went Because I know, Mark, you and Lou's have been partners for a long period of time. Um, you know, like I said, 94, been working hand in hand. And then we have, you know, the uh, the other side of the Hydra here, the third head, too. So how, how did that how did that evolve when you brought Sufe into the fold? So Luce and I initially started doing all the credit work ourselves. And I know she mentioned on her podcast that she had a long history of marketing, credit research, head of credit research, kind of migrating up to her current spot as the director of our group. When we brought Sufe in, she immediately took over a third of the credits over time, uh, Luce migrated up to the head of credit and then out of credit as a co-PM and eventually the head PM for our group. Then Sufe and I started to split the credits. Uh, over the years, we've covered almost every sector within our universe individually. So I've covered banks for a period, then Sufe covered banks for a period throughout all of the industries we've had. And um, then the two of us started adding to the teams, uh, adding members to the team because it was just too much for two to handle. Right. So you keep using the word credit. Sufe, what does he mean when he says credit? Explain that to our listeners. Not everybody here is an EM expert. What is he talking about credits? It's looking at the credit fundamentals of a company or a country, a sovereign. So you're going through the credit analysis. We have a bottom-up credit process, okay. investment process. And so it's, you know, for countries, we have, there's a list of things, but the, the key one that we key off is, you know, countries that are committed to economic reforms. Okay. And then for, for a company specific, you know, we're looking at the credit fundamentals, certain uh, specific credit metrics. Well, you know, we're looking, we have, they have to meet certain uh, investment uh, rationale, EM investment rationale. I don't know if you wanted me to get into specifics, uh, you know, 
Uh, I may be giving off 10, um, but this is you know, such a favorite See, topic about always to talking about credit. There's only thousands of Sherman <laughs> Show listeners out there. You Are know, we at thousands go, now? Uh, no, uh, we're just, we're hoping. Well, uh, you yeah. know, yesterday, actually, I was at a, at a reception, and I ran into one of your fans. Oh, really? Yes. He, was, was my mom in the office yesterday? Is that what that was? No, yeah. no. You yeah. got, See, that's two now. Okay. You got more than one now. Well, we're accelerating here. So, so you talk about sovereign. So how do you think about analyzing the relative value of a sovereignty versus a corporate entity? And how does that, that go into play? I mean, if we talk about a corporate entity in an emerging market, let's say like in Ecuador, you know, where, uh, where Mark was doing some of his work down there uh, many moons ago. How do you think about the credit from a corporate standpoint? Do you have to layer on the sovereign entity as well? And how do you, how do you get comfortable with those, those, the duality of those two um, analyses? So if we're looking at a corporate, first we have, and we have, and we have to look at where it's domiciled. And if we're comfortable with where it's domiciled, so that's a top-down picture. So that's where we reach out to our sovereign analysts to see if they like the country to, to begin with. If they, don't care, if they don't like the country, then it's really unless there are structural enhancements for that particular credit, that we don't have to take that particular country risk. So what would be a country that you're not very comfortable with? I won't say you don't like it, but what's one that... Well, the one that you just used about Ecuador. It's been a serial defaulter, and so we... That's why we keep sending Mark down there to do some more work. Exactly, we need to send him down there. Unfortunately, I've never had a chance to go back. They don't issue any corporate bonds. (laughs) And then, as (laughs) Sufei mentioned, we're not in the habit of buying serial defaulter (laughs) sovereign bonds. That's not a good business plan. Just keep buying bonds. The default. Well, speaking of, uh, why don't we just talk transitioning there? Uh, what about Argentina? I mean, talking about a serial defaulter. I mean, we saw their bonds. You know, they come back to the market after two defaults in really 15 years. Came back to the market, got massively tight pricing. Um, how do you guys think about that going forward when you know they have been, I'm going to say more than, more than twice as a serial defaulter? I would say that just to give a little history of Argentina. So coming, as we mentioned, we've been in the market since, since the early 90s. In that mid to late 90s, we were invested in Argentina. And then in 2001, they had a default, a maxi default, and all the many of the credits within the country went through defaults. Subsequent to that, they had several, uh, three or four presidents over several weeks, and then ultimately the Kirchners, uh, first the husband, and then later on when he passed away, his wife took over and we had a decade. And as Sufe alluded to, we, we have filters for our credit process, one of which is com- countries with commitment to economic and structural reforms. They absolutely did a reverse on that and went backwards, really destroying a lot of sectors and industries within the country. And we wouldn't have been involved in companies within Argentina for that, that decade-long process or more than a decade-long process unless they had some sort of structural enhancement, some way to get trapped cash offshore, something that would enhance the credit over and above the, the negative sovereign overlay that was being put on. Now, having said that, Mrs. Kirchner lost to, uh, in this last presidential election a couple years back, the new president is, is focused on fixing the wrongs, and um, we may have missed out on a little bit of that transition, but wanted to make sure that the, that the president was focused on, on changing and riding the ship. And so we've come back in, and Argentina, despite having missed a little bit of the not being early enough maybe, there's still been good value in, in Argentine credits. But that's uh, risk management too, yeah. right? You're talking about it too. So leaving some on the table while you're trying to get comfortable. So that's a perfect transition. So Sufe, quantify for me how Sufe uh, thinks about risk when we're trying to 
build the as a co-portfolio manager on a lot of our emerging market products. Uh, we use a lot of your analysis and your work uh, in a lot of our multi-sector products. How do you think about the risk in your markets? How do you think about putting these pieces together? Yes, you do a lot of work on the corporates. All these credits look good. How do you think about putting them together? So you can look at risk as one in terms of credit risk and then the interest rate risk. So in credit risk, you know, we have somewhat of a control in that in, in that we can pick credits where we believe there has relative value or that will deliver the best risk risk-adjusted returns, you know, credits that are on an improving trend. Mm-hmm. So we go through our credit process, our bottom-up credit process I alluded to earlier. And so, you know, depending on our view of the market is how we would position whether we want it to be in certain regions, you know, or certain credit quality. That's how we would manage that portion of it. In terms of the interest rate risk, that's, you know, the duration. And that's also how we manage, you know, if we want it to go longer, you know, if it pays us to go down, you know, to its longer dated maturities or to shorten our durations, you know, in a, in times when we expect the interest rates to go up. Right. So kind of in today's environment, I mean, um, you know, this is recorded a little bit before it go out, but I mean, one of the rougher weeks in the bond market, I mean, January was a really tough time for U.S. interest rates. Uh, been feeling the pain, and it's gotten worse the first couple of days of February thus far. And so it is important to to think about not just the credit, but how much interest rate risk you're taking, right? Right. And and that's why, and you know, so given our view of, what, of uh, the market, we currently, we are positioned kind of relatively conservatively, you know, because we're kind of expecting this interest rate rise, you know. Uh, as we're seeing you it right see, now, if, as if we're you seeing can't it right see, now. See, see hands, <laughs> he's pointing at me like you know, like uh, that we've been calling for for a little bit. But yes, you're correct. That has been our macro view. Yes. And so, you know, generally in the rising rate environment, it's we can all agree that it's bad for the fixed income asset class. However, having said that, if the rate, if interest rates is rising amidst a growing economy. You know, that which which means which potentially means that some countries or companies can't be can be growing the you know, the economy and therefore improving their credit fundamentals, which potentially may lead to, you know, investors still, you know, having uh their risk appetite intact and and could lead further down, you know, leading uh to you know, the credit spreads tightening. So, so, so it doesn't necessarily mean that all the time that in a rising rate environment, it's bad for EM assets because we have seen, you know, in the past that in a rising rate environment, EM, the asset class has actually performed well. And that's because, you know, while interest rates is rising, EM spreads has been tightening. However, having said that, I think today it's different. Where we are right now, it's different. Because uh, where EM spreads are right now, it's at um, 10-year historical tights. So there's not a lot of cushion to absorb that in, that interest rate rise, which leads back to what we uh, where we're positioning the portfolio. Yeah, I, like, is, I like that that you actually <laughs> use the phrase "this time is different," not to get bullish, but actually to be more defensive. And you know, it's something we've been talking about as a firm. Uh, you know, talking about that although we have all this uh, data, the various data points through history. Um, it could be different because of the absolute level of yields, right? And so having a lower level 
uh, means that you maybe don't have as much spread cushion because as we've seen, I mean, the U.S. 10-year, I mean, we're talking about, you know, in the last two months has moved something to magnitude like 60 basis points. I mean, we're, we're in the middle of a, of a decent rate move here and you're seeing credit spreads have tightened in this first leg. But, you know, our contention is, is that, you know, if you get another 50 or 60, um, it, it probably, you have to have spread widening as well because eventually those kind of relative value trades play off. So to that point, yeah, going back to you, Mark, you're talking about joining in 1993. Um, I wasn't in the markets back then, but I recall something happening in 1994, uh, not just in the bond markets, but um, in, in, a, in a pretty high-profile emerging market country. Uh, how did that feel like your first year kind of being in the in the game, getting into the tequila crisis? And maybe you can describe what the tequila crisis was. Sure. It's not just a Friday night at a, at a bar in Los Angeles here, but maybe you can explain to our, our listeners uh, what, what we mean in the financial sense. Yeah, so that's that's an interesting point you bring back uh, bring up, it, and it goes back a lot of years. Um, ironically, when I came into the market, just some, some little tidbit, little factoid. We when love came, factoids here. When I came in, um, Mexican spreads had been tightening for the, over like the last two or three years significantly to the point where they were closing the gap toward U.S. yields. And as, as, as a new uh, uh, analyst in, into, the, into the emerging market space, I thought, well, if they're going to tighten into the U.S. space, then will I have a job? Will emerging markets exist anymore? And then within several months, the peso blew out from 3 to 12, then came back in again toward more norm. Well, it still stayed out quite wide, but came back into single-digit numbers. And Mexico, you're talking about the currency, not, not the yield. The currency blew out. Right. No, not the yield, but uh, uh, specifically but the currency is what I was referencing. Um, the banking sector went into tor- turmoil. We went through quite a significant shock in, in Mexico, and a lot of things were learned. One, yeah, this is going to be a long, uh, the, the market will be in place for a long time for the emerging so market space. So you were probably one of the few that are out there celebrating the tequila crisis, right? Because you're yeah, saying, hey, I have a job. Yeah, I, I still have, have a job, job, right? Yeah. And, um, and Sufe was looking at the office, you know, like she was trying <laughs> yeah, to make that's sure. that's right. She, 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 she going to be available. Going to still be there, right? That's right. So um, we went through it. It was, uh, you know, through that was just the start. It was It was Mexico first. One thing we learned out of that is uh, to not panic that the markets do normalize. And in this case, Mexico did some things that were interesting and unique to con- almost any country in the world. They pledged Petrobras uh, exports for a $40 billion. That, you mean I Pemex? Pemex, Pemex, Pemex right? sorry, yeah. wrong country. Pre- Petrobras Brazil. Yeah. Pemex uh, exports for an additional $40 billion to plug the hole of what they thought, thought might come out in dollars. And it helped stabilize Mexico, and eventually that was removed. Uh, we saw a country dedicated to supporting its banking sector that had quite large holes. It took almost 10 years for the banks to kind of regain their positions of strength. Um, a lot of things took place during this time frame that we learned that we could use in the subsequent uh, events that took place. The next was the Asia crisis, similar type of things, banks and this companies like putting under stress, right? 97 and then into 98 with, with Russia ruble, yeah. and the ruble devaluation, all experiences that today we can look back on and, and appreciate for the lessons learned. But when you're going through it, it's it's tough. Yeah, I mean, I think the really the, a lot of newer investors have really their their first crash they've actually seen in something like that is probably cryptocurrency, right? Yeah. I mean, we haven't really had some you know kind of big crisis in the last eight or nine years outside of 
you know, kind of the crypto phenomenon that we're seeing and um, out there too. And that's obviously a joke around here. I mean, I know there's not a lot of professional investors that are heavily invested here, but it is interesting what you learn from those events. So, well, if I may add, because of the lessons that we've learned throughout these different crises, and、uh, you know, and we it allowed us to kind of fine tune our investment process. And so one of the things that we had learned right after the Russian crisis is that we going into the crisis, I think we had a higher than normal what we now called comfortable level of exposure to a single country, and now it's、um, above the fifteen percent. So one after, five, one five, yes,、okay. one five.、Okay. And so now that is sort of an internal limit that we set ourselves that we don't want to have more than the one five, the fifteen percent exposure to a single country. So how how do you think about when when you talk about these countries and、um, so these current countries have their own currencies? We just talk about the peso, you talk about the ruble. How do you think about the trade off between buying dollar denominated assets versus what would be called local currency? Maybe you can explain to our listeners, and I'll I'll, I'll put that as a jump ball between the two of you. How, what does that mean, right? When we have a dollar denominated bond versus a local currency bond, and how do you kind of assess the relative value? Uh, opportunity set between those two. In, in a normal environment, let's say just where conditions are fairly flat and and、um, no individual piece of turmoil going on with an individual country,、um, we can say let's say take a Mexico for example. When we look at a dollar bond, our investors give us our money for the most part in most of our accounts in dollars. We invest it in dollars, we get dollars back. Now there are other companies with there are companies within these countries. Some of them, the ones that are issuing dollar bonds, and then there's probably an even deeper market for、uh, smaller issuance size and、um, many more companies we don't see in the dollar side that will issue in local currency. A couple things that we have to keep in mind,、um, just from a value perspective. In the case of Mexico, we found that because the Mexican market, and this is something that's developed over the last 25 years, because some of these markets are becoming more、um, uh, mature,、uh, the rates that they can offer in these deep mature markets locally are not much different than they are in dollars. So, if we were to look and and just to give a little bit of history. Having、uh, since we've been here at DoubleLine, we have only invested in U.S. dollar-denominated bonds in the emerging market space, and、uh, we've done that because of some of the things mentioned earlier about the the risk that comes with、um, and the volatility that comes with investing in local currency. Now, if we were going to invest in local currency, which we have the ability to do in many of our funds, we want to make sure one either we're going to get a nice Carry because of the particular country we're going into, and in the Mexico case, this wouldn't offer that because the the yields are about the same. And carry means incremental yield. Incremental yield.、Listening. So if we were to say maybe a country that had just had some stress, and so you saw a bond where in the dollar space it might trade at six or seven percent, but in the local currency space, let's say it trades at twelve percent. So you get that added pickup. Do we? So we're looking for that. And are we comfortable that the currency will remain stable? Because if it's not stable, we we looked at an Argentine bond the other day, skipping now to a third country,、um, and one that actually offers quite significant uh, uh, yields on their their local debt,、um, having just recently come out of、um, come away from a, a presidency that was uh, uh, moving the country backwards from a fundamental standpoint into a new sort of environment. 
uh, they're still having to offer very significant high local yields. For instance, we looked at a bank. I think it had, I, I, I'm not hitting the exact number, let's say 16 17% return. High double digits. High double digits. Yield. Yield. Yields. yield. Sorry, yields. And um, in the dollar space, it might be 7 or 8%. So it, it's interesting. I mean, you're thinking, hey, I know the credit. We're comfortable with the credit. Um, but what's the drawback? Well, the drawback is the, the Argentine peso may be devaluing 10% a year, and you're effectively back to your 6%, and you carry the volatility that comes with that. So that's that's part of what we do. That's part of why we've stayed out. We may have missed a couple of opportunities in the last eight years to take advantage of that, but you have to get the timing right. And as Sufe alluded to, if we if we looked back historically since being here at Double Line, uh, the EM uh, corporate and sovereign dollar space has returned at least double with half or a third the volatility of the local currency space. So when you're saying, as, as Sufe yes. said, we're talking right. about risk-adjusted returns. Right, right. Yeah. right. I mean, you know, what, what Mark was referring to is that there's, a re- there's some research done by Celsa analysts uh, with data going back to 2004. And they found that overall, on average, during this period, that EM sovereign and EM corporates in dollar and hard currency had uh, higher best, higher um risk-adjusted return than local currency. So, I mean, that's going back to, that's 14 years. Yeah, I've been further than eight here. That you have higher, you know, returns. Well, no, I mean, that, that it just goes into our overall philosophy and thinking about risk-adjusted returns and how to manage that. So let's talk about, um, you know, the current environment, 2018, uh, kind of reading the headlines here. And yes, sometimes I feel like we're an emerging market country when you look at some of the headlines. Um, so how do you guys um, try to uh, think about where we are in the business cycle, what that looks like for 2018, and how do you prudently put together an emerging market uh, debt allocation today? Well, I think that um, some of the things that uh, um, were talked about earlier, uh, I think talk about how we're positioned, as you mentioned, um, and, and as we've talked about, our current uh, yields are and our spreads are so tight right now that um, it just didn't make sense for us to to continue having a, a longer duration, um, lower quality portfolio. So although we're looking at the same things we look at every year, sort of um, what's the global growth outlook, where do we see European credit risk, China we think is relatively stable with a slowing growth trajectory. I mean, we're, we don't see any big events on the horizon but given the fact that we're so tight on a historical basis, 10-year tights, um, and we don't uh, see any real catalyst for for that to go much further outside of just maybe some technical uh, technical issues with people, I think, coming late to the market, uh, and we have some maybe some anecdotes there we can we can address. Uh, we are positioned going into 18 um, to be more conservatively uh, positioned and hope that. If, if something does back up, one, we're going to protect our clients' money. Two, if, if we do see a backup in the market, we're positioned well to take advantage of dislocations as they come. Sufe, favorite trend for 2018? I'll put you on the spot. Favorite trend for 2018? I think it's assured. Uh, I think we're going to continue to see heavy supplies, robust supplies, because issuers are taking this opportunity of, you know, investors continuing search for yield and, and investors' demand. And so we are, you know, as we've seen in the first month of, of the year of 2018, 
there's been quite heavy, you know, robust, if you will, of issuers and some coming from new sectors that we've never seen before. We had a cosmetic company. Where from? Brazil. And we also had a hospital that came to, uh, also out of Brazil. Okay. A Brazil Muni Bond, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's just opening up the, the floodgates, you know, because I think for, for the last um, few years, uh, two years, Uh, there have been a shortage, you know, uh, Brazilians issuer had not been able to come to the market just given what's been going on in the country, all the scandals, the car wash scandal. And, but now, you know, they're seeing, they're taking the opportunity, advantage of this, that investors seems to be non-discriminatory, uh, towards, you know, what, where they're, the company's coming from or what country, you know, despite so the car is, wash. You is know, robust percent. issuance good or bad? I mean, you got more supply of bonds. We got the DM world kind of giving out more bonds. I mean, we just gave everybody a tax cut in this country. Uh, we gave everybody a tax cut, and it's led to um, a bigger issuance calendar. I mean, is a robust supply necessarily good? Or is it only good like on the corporate side? Or is it a trade-off between sovereign and corporate? Um, kind of walk us through that. It's good because it provides a broader selection of credit. And given that our markets have been maturing, it's provided more opportunity set as, as uh, different companies grow. We see more companies coming to the market, which is uh, grow in size. We've seen more companies come to the market. So that aspect is good. It gives us more opportunity. The negative can be that we start getting credits that – Uh, this company, Soufé, mentioned that, uh, well, we've had a credit that's come back to the market recently <laughs> after 17 years of being in default. You, you have to be selective because is this sometimes you... Is this a cosmetic you, company? Is no, 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 okay, no. Okay, okay. no, no, this is a No, that was the company. first time issuer. It's a new, new sector. But you have to be selective because what will happen is the reruns will come back and hide themselves and try to issue again people that have defaulted before and think, hey, I can try again and sneak it in while this is going on. And then you do run a risk of having uh, covenant light type issuers going forward. Yeah, I think the company that he's talking talking about is actually, you know, this week I actually uh, had a call with a company uh, doing a road show uh, trying to raise uh, a boatload of money. Uh, but it took the company 17 years to complete a debt restructuring. And so for a lot of... Um, Most managers don't stay around that exactly. long, let alone... It, it, let that's let alone exactly the, the, right, the yeah. point that I was that's trying to bring up. what they're hoping for. Right, exactly. Is that yeah. you don't have managers or analysts that are looking at, for the first time, this company, or perhaps the sector, um, the SASA class, had that kind of experience that we had. Um, that, you know, if you look at, the, on surface, the, the, the numbers, the credit metrics of the company, it looks okay. You know, it is the largest company in the sector that it that's it that it is. You know, so it has a dominant market position, and it is a hard currency generator, which is good if you're buying a dollar, dollar bond. Right? Exactly, yeah. if you're buying the dollar bond, you know that that's a good thing. However, you know, people may not know that this company it took the seventeen the company seventeen years to complete debt restructuring. You know? Well, that's why you have Mark around. He's been around <laughs> just slightly more than seventeen years in this space. I mean, that's what I think is so great. I mean, you guys have, you know, your team, and uh, I, uh, Mark's kind of putting his head down now, feeling older. Uh, but the thing is, is that you had this experience. You guys aren't just entrants. It's a new foray. Uh, you've ran, you know, uh, mutual funds. You've ran separate accounts. You run CDO structures. You run loan structures. I mean, you've ran all kinds of different things. And so uh, it's that experience, I think, that's very important. And one thing that you actually brought up earlier, Sherman, that I thought was interesting is, you know, how the U.S. is starting to look perhaps like an emerging market country based on some of the characteristics there. Given your expertise and given the framework that you use to, to analyze some of these uh, EM sovereigns, 
I'm interested how would you would evaluate the U.S. in this point in time, given the, some of the demographics, the, the debt buildup. Are, are, we, are we an improving credit story, I think, is kind of what – was that your phrase, oh, Sufei? Right? <laughs> I, I would say two, two – oh, go ahead, Sufei. No, no, if you no have, go ahead. You I just have. was going to mention two, two stories, okay. and one was from the head of uh, uh, global research, used to be the head of EM research for one of the large um, investment houses uh, back east. So talking about the U.S. and our, our view, I think we kind of have the same view she does. Um, and that is that, uh, she talks to all the, the, the billionaires throughout emerging markets. And so she had a forum, invited people up. And the only people that came up were like a handful of Mexican billionaires. Nobody else came to this, this forum, no U S investors, uh, no, um, uh, and it was mainly for the U S investors. And she's at the end, she said, I'm sorry to the folks that came that you had to come and, and there weren't a lot of people here. They said, no, we love hearing about the United States. We all put our money here. It's the only place we would put our money because globally the U.S. is still viewed as the safe haven, the strength, the the the, the solid anchor to, to the global economies. And so, I, th- I mean, we still, look, we travel around. We still love coming home. We love our markets. We love what goes on there. Um, we think the company, many of the companies are great. But they're, they're, and we, but we do understand what you're saying. And on the other anecdote is, is years back I was in with, uh, a Mexican company and I was kind of giving them a hard time. Hey, when are you going to, uh, push for, uh, you know, IFRS or U.S. gap, uh, reporting instead of your local, local gap? It may have been a Mexican Brazilian company, but when are you going to switch? Because we'd like to see it in, in more developed market terms. And they said, well, did that serve Enron well? Did that serve WorldCom well? Yes, we do have our problems here. There's a lot of things structurally that we could fix in the U.S., but I still think it, it, we do appreciate. I do appreciate coming home and and having the benefits we have here and the strength of what we have here in the U.S. Well, but. I have another view. I would summarize it by saying that U.S. is a slowing, deteriorating credit and not a, an improving credit story like that's, we would characterize emerging markets. You know, and that is going back to the, you know. So, so you heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> Long EM, short U.S. out of Sufei Ku for 2018. I think that's her trend developing, yeah? So anything else uh, you'd like to leave our listeners with uh, before we let uh, Sam kick off his favorite part of the uh, episode? EM is a secular improving credit story. Okay. That's what. <laughs> I have another question. <laughs> we could <laughs> on top of that too. Yeah. Actually, you know, since we're talking about trends developing in 2018, one of the things that we've been at the firm here pounding the table on is the potential uh, for a rally in commodity markets, and you know, especially as a potential late cycle, you know, performer. How does that play into the EM space in, in terms of the countries that you're looking at? I think overall it's uh, it's positive, especially for the for Latin America or the, the the companies that are commodities producing countries. You know, so that bodes really well in general uh, for for the asset class. And they're not very hedged at this point, too, right? And when yes. you look at South America, too, they're still kind of long the the, the price story, right? Yeah. And the countries yeah, in the right. EM space that would that would be affected to the other end because it's kind of split. But the ones that typically are affected are the are the takers of the commodity that now are going to end up paying more, the Indias of the world, the Koreas, uh, and so forth. Um, but these are coming from a, a stronger base relative to the to the Latin space, so they should be able to weather the the rising well, I commodity. I don't think India is a price is a commodity taker. They actually have a lot of mine. 
mining resources. There's the battle that's coming. See, the reason that for our listeners, this didn't play out according to Sam and I's plan. Uh, Mark and Sufei tend to have disparate views of one another, and I think they agreed to get along here, but we had to just keep pressing questions until we got one there. So, okay, well, uh, with that, thanks for coming on the show. But as I said, uh, you don't get to leave before you get to listen to Sam's favorite part of the show. All right, so we're going to get into uh, Sherman Says here. The rules of the game is I'm going to throw out a term, and and you will give me back a one word. Oh, I always say one word answer, but uh, you can give me back a term or a couple words. We'll try to stick to one word. Let's see, I'm, I'm going to say goes. since we have two on the other side that we see who answers first with one word, and then we'll oh, score it at the end. Oh, always Sufei. I can never uh, get a word in edgewise. Then we need a buzzer. We need a buzzer. No, no there's no, yeah, no, 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 no. I've got two questions. I've got questions for all three of you. Oh, here. okay. All right. Okay. So, I wanted to see if we could jump in there. So since it's the uh, Sufei-Mark duel, we'll start off with Sufei with India. Positive. I thought you might say... Uh, Price taker or something. No, the other, actually, the other way around. Right. 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 Yeah. Mark, India. Oh, I Stable. gave you separate questions, but they're the same <laughs> one. Okay. Bakersfield. Roots. Tacos. Delicious. Leftovers. Work lunch. Favorite <laughs> favorite rapper. The game. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you expected Tupac. I know you're going to say that. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's, you gotta you gotta change up every once in a while. Okay, fair enough. EM sovereigns. Well, increasing our exposure there. EM credit. Stable. You don't say you're increasing your exposure. She did that. Okay, good. good. Stable. Okay. The long bond. Painful. University of Houston or USC. Like them both. <laughs> oh, come Protein. On. Uh, Patriots. This is before the Super Bowl, just so you know. So he, Mark's going on a stand. Bronze. Likey. And that's it. It's a All short right. one today. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining. Sufe, Mark, we really appreciate you stopping by, coming all the way down from the 19th floor to the 18th floor in our recording studio. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening for The Sherman Show. Uh, we'll accept some feedback. As I mentioned before, in 2018, we have The Sherman Show at DoubleLine.com. Uh, we're still waiting to see if that inbox works. Uh, so send us an email. Uh, tell us about uh, what you like, what you don't like what you'd like to hear from Mark and Sufei if you want to hear from any other guests. Again, you can catch us on SoundCloud, um, iTunes, and Google Play. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of Double Line. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Double Line, please contact media at doubleline.com. Neither Double Line nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by 
any double-line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2018, Double Line Capital.